Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Isabella I of Castile, an incredibly important figure not just in Spanish history, but in the history of the entire world. And the reason for this is that Isabella and her husband Ferdinand were responsible for the unification of Spain into one kingdom, which led directly to the emergence of Spain as an early global power and also led to the beginning of the colonisation of the Americas, which is not a legacy that has aged all that well. But for better or for worse, the Spanish Empire, which began under their rule, would go on to become one of history's largest and most powerful empires. And it all began with Isabella and her husband. The pair have become known to history as the Catholic monarchs, and their impact on world history has been enormous. Again, not just in Spain, across the Atlantic, into the Americas. In Spain... Isabella fought to inherit the Kingdom of Castile. She reformed and modernised it. And then alongside Ferdinand, the King of Aragon, she conquered the last remaining area of Iberia that was under Muslim control, Granada. And then that same year, she oversaw the departure of Christopher Columbus as he made his historical journey westward, hoping to find Southeast Asia. And what he found instead, of course, was the Americas. And his arrival there marked a watershed moment in world history as the European imperial conquest of the continents began. And her influence was also felt across her home continent of Europe as well, as she arranged and organised dynastic matches to entrench her family amongst the royal houses of Europe, which led to the continued rise of the Habsburgs, particularly in Spain. And also, despite being a Catholic, I mean, she, she's known to history as, you know, one of the Catholic monarchs, she also had a hand in the rise of, if you'll believe it, Anglicanism. So Isabella's role in Spanish and European and world history is absolutely enormous. She's one of those figures that crystallised history, representing a series of monumental changes that left the world a very different place. And even today, the Kingdom of Spain is ruled by her direct descendants. Spanish is one of the most spoken languages around the world. And much of this is because of what Isabella and her husband achieved in their lifetime. So let's get across her story. Let's talk about just how she became this towering figure. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 22nd of April, 1451, to the birth of Isabella in the town of Madrigal de las Altas Torres, uh, which is northwest of Madrid. And she was born to John II of Castile and his wife, Isabella of Portugal. Again, I don't know what it is with European royalty and using the same names over and over, mate. I mean, spare a thought for the humble historian trying to pick you all apart. It's only that. The, the same name issue is only going to get worse from here, let me tell you. Anyway, she's second in line when she's born to the Castilian throne. She's behind her half-brother, Henry, who was born to John II of Castile and his first wife. And then two years later, two years after she was born, she was bumped down to third when her younger brother, Alfonso, was born. He overtakes from the line of, of succession because he's a male. Now, a quick rundown of the Kingdom of Castile and its situation on the Iberian Peninsula. Today, the Iberian Peninsula is made up of two nations. It's made up of Spain and Portugal, as, as you may know. But the political situation back at the time of Isabella was, well, to begin with at least, when she was born, very different indeed. Spain doesn't exist as a nation, not yet, although obviously it will by the end of this episode. 
Um, and from a historical standpoint, the Iberian Peninsula had for a long time been full of a huge number of small Christian kingdoms up in the north. There was Castile and Leon, uh, Galicia, Asturias, Navarre, Aragon, Portugal. Um, and in the south, for much of the uh, the medieval period, Iberia was controlled by Muslims, whether it was the Umayyads or the Almoravids or the Almohads, what have you. By the time Isabella is born, however, Iberia has been consolidated into a few remaining realms. There's Portugal, Aragon, Navarre, and Castile, all ruled by Christians. And there's the Emirate of Granada, which is the last remaining Muslim realm on the peninsula. Now, Castile was the largest of all of these realms by quite a margin. Uh, it, it, it took in what is today North and Central Spain, as well as parts of the South, excluding the area around Granada. But by the end of this episode, the Iberian Peninsula will largely look like it does today. Portugal in the southwest and the rest is the Kingdom of Spain. But anyway, before, the, before there was Spain, there was Castile, as I say, and Isabella third in line to its throne. But she didn't remain third for long because in 1454, her dad, John II, died and her half-brother, Henry, became Henry IV of Castile. Now, this didn't work out so well for Isabella because Henry wasn't a big fan of his stepmum or his half-siblings. And so they were packed off to a shabby old castle and largely ignored by the crown. John II had left some money behind to take care of his family, but Henry just pocketed it for himself instead. So really not an ideal start for Isabella. Nonetheless, she still received an excellent education. She learned to read and write. She studied history and maths, got involved in the, in the arts, in dancing and music, embroidery, all sorts of stuff. But then in 1462, Henry IV called both Isabella and her brother Alfonso to his court in Segovia, and it was there that they stayed for the rest of their upbringing under the close supervision of their half-brother. Now, why was this? Why did he want them so, uh, so close to where he was? In short, Henry wasn't a very popular king. His vassals were looking, uh, looking for ways to unseat him, or at least put as much political pressure on him as possible. Um, and this principally involved demanding that he named Alfonso, his half-brother, as his heir rather than his newly born daughter, Joanna. Now, Alfonso obviously likes the sound of that. So he leaves Segovia once there are all these nobles who are backing him to become the heir to the, to the Castilian throne. He leaves Segovia, he joins up with all of these supportive nobles, nobles, and then he and Henry actually fought a battle over the crown in 1467. I mean, well, obviously not them personally. I mean, they got their soldiers to do their dirty work for them. It's not, you know, they can't go around brawling like drunken yobbos out, uh, outside the front of a bar. But this battle was inconclusive, and the ultimate result was that Henry held onto his crown but agreed to name Alfonso as his heir so as to avoid further problems. But all this did was create more problems because after being named as Henry's heir, Alfonso died of the plague in 1468. But before he did, he named Isabella, his sister, as his heir. This meant that the nobles once again pressed Henry to recognise an heir that was not his daughter, Joanna. Instead, it was now Isabella as the daughter of the former King John II, and this meant more fighting. Conflict erupted once again. Eventually, the two sides came to an agreement, and Henry capitulated once again. He kept his crown, but he named Isabella as his heir. And like every good compromise, it left both sides feeling hard done by. The nobles had failed to overthrow Henry, and Henry had failed to secure his daughter's succession. 
But Henry now had to find a husband for Isabella as his heir, and this, of course, was an opportunity for him to bring about a powerful alliance with another royal house. I mean, Isabella had already been betrothed, obviously, as the, as a daughter of a, of a ruling noble house, a royal house. Um, uh, at the age of six, she had been betrothed to some younger son of the King of Navarre, King John II, different King John II. But when this John II also inherited the Kingdom of Aragon and the Kingdom of Sicily, a rivalry emerged between Henry IV of Castile and John II of now Aragon and Navarre and Sicily. So Henry instead negotiated a betrothal between Isabella and one of John's other sons, the eldest named Charles, who John didn't get on with at all, and Henry offered to press Charles's claim to Navarre against his father. Now, John didn't like that. He locked up Charles. Charles died in prison in 1461. And so, Henry, before this alliance could be fully uh, solidified with a marriage to his his half-sister and heir, Isabella, he had to go back to the drawing board. In 1465, he, had try- he tried to arrange a marriage between uh, Isabella and King Afonso V of Portugal, a direct descendant of King Afonso I, episode 154, get across it. But Isabella refused the match. She did not want to get married to this bloke. And so next up was an attempt by Henry to win over one of his disgruntled vassals by offering Isabella as a wife. He, this vassal was almost 30 years older than Isabella and she was horrified by the idea. Um, but the marriage was going to go ahead all the same. And uh, luckily for her, she found a very clever way out of it because he died en route to meet her. So dodged a bullet there. Nice. Well, I mean, not not nice for the vassal, but so it goes. Anyway. This brings us to 1468 when this compromise was made. And as part of the compromise, Henry and Isabella agreed that they had to mutually approve of any marriage that she entered into. So Henry is going about trying to find someone who would both provide Castile with a powerful ally and also be someone that Isabella was going to like. He tried to organise something in England uh, with one of Edward IV's brothers, but that fell through. Again, he tried in Portugal with Afonso V, no good once again. He got in touch with Louis XI uh, of France and tried to match it with his brother Charles, but Isabella refused this match. So ultimately, she ends up getting married to a young prince named Ferdinand, the son of John II of Aragon. And this Ferdinand was, believe it or not, the same bloke she was betrothed to back when she was six. All of that farting about across Western Europe, the negotiations and the rivalries and the plotting and the scheming, and she just ended up with the bloke that she started out with. The only problem with this match was that they were um, cousins, so the Pope himself had to issue a special dispensation for them to marry. But, hey, look, that's never stopped the royal houses of Europe before, has it? The simple matter of being cousins? Ah, it doesn't matter. So they were married in 1469, Isabella and Ferdinand. Also, I should mention there are some theories that the Pope actually wouldn't grant the dispensation, so they just forged one. I'm not sure if this is true, but it it does at least seem to be suspected. I mean, like a a kid who forgot their homework forging a note for their parents, they might have forged a note to let them marry their cousin. Amazing. Anyway, but look. With the death of the older brother back in 1461, Ferdinand is now heir to Aragon. So now we've got the heir to Castile and the heir to Aragon getting married. This is a pretty big deal. And Isabella doesn't stay the heir for too long either because her older half-brother Henry IV died in late 1474 and Isabella, as agreed, was proclaimed queen as his heir. Ferdinand becomes king as well, although... 
I have to st- I have to say, despite these two being married, there was a fair bit of tension and drama over him becoming king alongside of Isabella. Uh, the two of them had to work out a, a deal, not just as husband and wife, but also as potentially rival monarchs, as Ferdinand, as I mentioned, was next in line to inherit Aragon. So this required very careful legal planning, uh, but they got through it. For instance, Ferdinand had to renounce the dynastic claims that he already had to the throne of Castile, um, as those claims would have allowed him to rule in his own right, if pressed, not through the, 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 right, of his, the right of his wife, Dijua Uxoris. Um, but by 1475, they have settled on an agreement that sees Ferdinand on an equal footing with Isabella as king and queen of Castile, although... He did insist that his name came first on official documents, which is a bit unfair. Anyway, with that all sorted out, their dual reign began. However, let me tell you this, it did not get off to the smoothest start. Remember how beforehand uh, Henry had had to deal with all of these troublesome vassals who were fighting him in order to try to put Isabella on the throne? Well, now all of the vassals that had supported Henry during that conflict, now they all want Joanna on the throne instead. Joanna is only 12. She's the daughter of the of, of the late Henry. Um, and she is essentially just being used as a tool by these powerful nobles who were looking to install her as queen so they could just basically rule through her. And what's more, they are planning to marry her to King Afonso V of Portugal, who we mentioned before. And not only is he 30 years older than Joanna, he's also her uncle. I mean, European royals, mate, what are they about? They're like bloody arborists with chainsaws when it comes to managing a family tree. Anyway, Isabella's position was tenuous because Joanna's claim to Castile was quite strong and it was supported by the Portuguese. And eventually, a fully-fledged invasion was launched by Joanna and her allies, both uh, Castilian and Portuguese. Uh, And initially... These uh, these invaders had a fair bit of success in fighting the Castilians who were loyal to Isabella. But here's what's really interesting. When the forces of Isabella and Afonso finally met in a pitched battle at the Battle of Toro in 1476, it was a stalemate, but both sides claimed victory. They both claimed to have won the battle despite it being a draw. Both sides had suffered roughly the same losses. Both had more or less emerged from the battle in the same position militarily. But after the dust had settled on the battle's immediate aftermath, it became very clear that this draw that both were claiming as a victory actually favoured Isabella. And there's a very simple reason for this. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. And Isabella was the one with the throne and the crown and the royal court in Segovia. She was the one that Portuguese had had to invade and unseat in order to press Joanna's claim, not the other way around. And that means that the position of queen kind of defaulted to her, because if nothing about the status quo change, which is exactly what happened, then she would remain queen. And so Isabella very cleverly used the quote-unquote victory that the Castilians had had at Toro to give everyone the impression that her reign was secure. And this worked. She held royal courts where the victory was acclaimed and celebrated. She named her young daughter, who was also named Isabella. That's three Isabellas in a row. She named her as her heir and and legitimised her rule enormously with what essentially amounted to a bunch of publicity stunts. So PR entrenched Isabella as queen. In this situation, the pen ended up being much mightier than the sword. 
The war between the Castilians and the Portuguese did continue for another three years until 1479, but after the Battle of Toro, Isabella's rule was never really in any doubt, especially when she had another kid, a son, who she named John, another bloody John. But uh, now having a male heir, this further strengthened her position as queen, and as I say, her, uh, her rule was never really in doubt from this point onwards. But you can't win them all. And while the Castilians held firm on land, they really didn't fare too well on the water. The Portuguese fought the Castilians as both nations made colonial forays into Africa, specifically in Guinea, where gold was pillaged and, and, and people were enslaved. And the Portuguese beat the Castilians essentially at every turn in, in this theatre, with the decisive Battle of Guinea greatly hampering Castile's colonial ambitions. And when the war finally ended in 1479... The peace treaty cut both ways. Joanna and her Portuguese allies had to abandon all claims to the Castilian throne, so that's a great result for Isabella. But Castile also had to abandon its attempts to colonise the west coast of Africa, which certainly wasn't ideal for, for Isabella and Castile. While Isabella had secured her throne, it had come at a steep cost, as now the Portuguese were essentially uncontested in the Atlantic and were able to expand their colonial possessions, while Castile was not. And this result would have huge consequences down the line, not just for Castile, not just for Spain or Portugal, but for the entire history of the world. But we will get to that in due course. Anyway, the other major thing that happened in 1479 was the death of John II of Aragon, Ferdinand's dad. Um, both Isabella and Ferdinand were children of a bloke, a king named John II, but just not the same one. But anyway, John II of Aragon dies. And so now Ferdinand inherits the Aragonese throne. And I'm very pleased to say that Ferdinand extended the exact same agreement to Isabella that had governed their co-rule of Castile. When Ferdinand became the king of Castile through his marriage to Isabella, he was put on equal footing with her as a co-monarch. And now that the shoe is on the other foot, now he has a kingdom of his own, he returns the favour. And while the kingdoms were both governed separately... Isabella and Ferdinand had a level of interdependence on one another as they ruled their realms as equal partners. Although I do think, once again, that Ferdinand insisted on his name being put first on official documents. But, I mean, that's by the by. So their marriage really is a, a huge deal, historically speaking, because it is more than anything else the point at which the modern nation of Spain was properly conceptualised, especially as both Isabella and Ferdinand agreed that their heir would inherit both kingdoms together. And while the two kingdoms weren't officially merged until the early 18th century, in reality, Isabella and Ferdinand created a united Spanish monarchy with their marriage and inheritances, as well as their decision to have their heir inherit both crowns together rather than split them up again. So I think it's fair to say this is a massive moment in history. These two monarchs working together to unify their realms and in doing so creating one of the last millennium's most powerful and historically influential nations. Spain would dominate global affairs throughout much of, early, much of the early modern period, principally due to its unfortunate enthusiasm for colonisation. But the Spanish Empire, born from the landing of Columbus in the New World, it would go on to become one of the largest empires the world has ever seen. And this, of course, changed, the, changed human history, for better or worse. I mean, for, for worse in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to the people who were indigenous to the lands that Spain would go on to conquer. I mean, there's no doubt about that. 
But if you've still got any doubt as to how important Spain was in world history, I mean, it does have a much diminished position today in the 21st century compared to how it was, you know, four or five hundred years ago. But just have a look at the world's most popular native tongue languages. And Spain is, can you guess, it is second behind only Mandarin. There are more native Spanish speakers than native English speakers, even today, which should give you an idea of just how much influence Spain would go on to have on world affairs. And this is Spain's origin story, or at least it's an important part of it. When the heirs to two of the most powerful Spanish kingdoms got married and united their crowns. But let's put aside the longer view of history for just a second and we'll talk about Isabella as a queen. What was she like as a ruler? How did Castile and Aragon fare under her leadership alongside Ferdinand? Well, broadly speaking, she did a pretty good job. Henry IV had not left Castile in very good nick, uh, and even while she was at war with Portugal, Isabella did everything she could to reverse Castile's fortunes, and this involved things like improving the kingdom's finances by cutting spending and raising taxes. She cracked down on disorder and crime throughout the kingdom by instituting an early police force, and as I list these things off, I'm realising that by today's standards, they do not reflect all that well on her. But I'll say this, at the time, they were very necessary. Uh, royal spending had been thoughtlessly lavish under Henry. Brigands and bandits had preyed upon people up and down the kingdom. Her citizens were not being looked after. So Isabella, she put a stop to this. And I'll say, I'll say this as well. She didn't stop there. Henry, in order to keep up his frivolous spending habits, had sold off huge portions of crown land well below its value just to raise money quickly. But Isabella... She came after all of the nobles who had bought the land at bargain prices, and she told them they'd have to cough up a fairer price for them or give them back. And interestingly, many nobles actually supported this move because they were glad that Isabella was finally fixing the kingdom's finances. And so they gave her the money that she said they owed her. And on top of all of this, Isabella also took direct control of Castile's mints and reformed the coinage as Castilian money was, in some instances, almost worthless. And though by today's standards, these legal and financial reforms sound draconian and oppressive, they actually breathed new life into a kingdom that had been sorely ill-treated by its former King Henry. And besides, it, it wasn't all stuff that sounds tyrannical to us today. Isabella expanded the public service. She booted hereditary nobles from important public positions and instead appointed people who we, you know, actually able to do the job properly. And she cleverly mollified the disgruntled nobles by creating other fully meaningless titles for them to parade around with while all the public servants actually got to, you know, do their jobs and get on with the task at hand. Um, And further, she stamped out favouritism and corruption amongst her closest advisors. She wasn't wasn't afraid to tell busybody nobles who wanted power for power's sake just, just to bugger off. She told them where to stick it. Um, And it got to the point that non-noble, unwashed commoners were even serving on her royal council, which is a very, very progressive way of governing a kingdom. Although I do have to say that these commoners weren't actually filthy, unwashed peasants. They were definitely from from the bourgeois. Anyway, Isabella, who really did seem to have a knack for PR, she cast herself as a queen for the people and she opened her courtroom to petitioners of all social classes, often on a weekly basis. 
And she and Ferdinand would sit there and allow the common folk to come and approach her and petition her, bring, bring their problems to her. And she and Ferdinand would then rule on them. And this, of course, made them all the more popular with their subjects as they were seen to be so accessible. And finally, one of the key priority of Isabella's, along with Ferdinand, was to bring about a level of social and cultural and religious cohesion throughout both the realms that she governed. Even if Castile and Aragon remained politically separate, their monarchs did all that they could to bring about a level of of unity amongst the people that they ruled on a cultural and a social and a religious level. And this set the stage for not just the official unification of the Spanish crowns, but also for the inception of the global Spanish empire. Anyway, that was how Isabella got on with ruling her kingdom. And after she became the uh, the co-monarch of Aragon alongside Ferdinand, the years passed relatively unremarkably. So I want to jump ahead, therefore. I want to I jump ahead to a year of great importance in, uh, in, in Spanish and Iberian and Mediterranean and indeed world history, 1492. Now, aha, you're thinking Columbus, but no, not quite yet, not just yet. There is something else we have to talk about before we talk about him. In 1482, not 92, 10 years previous, Isabella and Ferdinand had embarked on a military campaign that would mark the very end of the Reconquista, the defeat of Islam on the Iberian Peninsula. They mobilized against the Emirate of Granada, which you might remember was the final, the final remnant of Al-Andalus or Muslim Iberia. And it took an entire decade, but in 1492, finally, Granada was beaten and the Catholic monarchs took control of the city and its emirate. Isabella and Ferdinand had bolstered their army with the most powerful gunpowder weapons they could find. And with them, they had laid, they'd laid siege to city after city, wearing away at Granada's power. And slowly but surely, as these cities fell, the Spaniards were able to inch towards the city of Granada, which they besieged in 1491. And early the next year, 1492, it fell and Al-Andalus was no more. The last Islamic realm in Iberia had been defeated. Now, initially, Isabella and Ferdinand were very gracious in victory. They signed a treaty that guaranteed the right for Muslims and Jews, for that matter, to remain in Granada so long as they submitted to Christian rule. They weren't kicked out. They weren't forced to convert. Again, initially, this arrangement wouldn't last, sadly, which we'll talk about in a bit. But this was yet another incredibly important point in history, particularly for the region, because for almost 800 years since the Umayyads invaded in 711, Iberia had been at least partially under Muslim rule, and at some points, almost all of it had been under the control of Islam. Now, however, in 1492, the Reconquista was complete, and Iberia was ruled in its entirety for the first time in centuries by Christians. And this is still the case today, of course, but if you visit modern-day Spain, if you go to cities like Granada, you can very clearly see the Islamic heritage of these places. For instance, the Alhambra, this huge palace that overlooks Granada, it's one of the finest examples of Islamic architecture in the entire world, and it's found in the deeply Catholic nation of Spain. But as many listeners will know, particularly those of an American persuasion, 1492 was also the year that Christopher Columbus set sail from Spain to the New World, which is an incredibly important event in world history. So much so that when dealing with the history of the American continents, we generally talk about pre-Columbian and post-Columbian eras. 
Columbus's voyages changed so much about the world and the way that it was seen by people on both sides of the Atlantic. And it was made possible by Isabella and Ferdinand. And look, we're not going to go into full detail here. Columbus and his voyages are probably worth a full episode at some point. But make no mistake, his 1492 journey, as ill-conceived and misguided as it was, it marked a turning point in world history. Here's the long and the short of it very quickly. In 1486, Christopher Columbus, an Italian bloke who had travelled extensively around Europe, he approached Isabella and Ferdinand and asked them to sponsor a voyage west across the Atlantic because he believed he would be able to reach Southeast Asia. Uh, Doing so would give Spain a way to colonise and exploit the riches of the East Indies, as they were known at the time. Uh, And as you remember, Portugal is more or less uncontested in the Atlantic at this point. So with this in mind, Isabella and Ferdinand agree to fund his voyage as they see it as a potential way to break the Portuguese maritime hegemony over colonial interests around the world. Uh, And they grant Columbus a very generous deal that also promised him the governorship of any lands that he claimed for Spain, in addition to the huge amounts of money needed for the journey. Uh, Columbus sailed across the Atlantic, landed in the Bahamas, not in Southeast Asia. He kidnapped indigenous people and stole their gold and riches to bring back to Spain. And this was a very unfortunate indication of what the future held for the American continents, as the coming centuries would hold little more than conquest and exploitation and degradation of, uh, of indigenous people and their cultures. Columbus is not a sympathetic figure in any regard. He treated the indigenous people of the places he landed with cruelty and brutality. He was arrogant and selfish. He ended up running afoul of Isabella and Ferdinand in later years as well. And on top of all of that, he was just a bit of an idiot, as he never admitted that he hadn't, in fact, reached the East Indies. Um, And that is why even today, Native Americans are still referred to as Indians, despite being thousands of kilometres away from South Asia. His reputation in history has been undeservingly positive, and there's an interesting reason for this. In the wake of the American War of Independence, the newly formed nation was in need of historical heroes to look up to, but these heroes couldn't be English because, of course, the American Revolution was fought against the English, so these young Americans had to look outside of their direct forebears to find historical figures to adulate as heroes. And... Columbus was picked as an American hero, being the one who, quote-unquote, discovered America, despite that not being true for many reasons. Firstly, he wasn't even the first European to set foot in the Americas. That was Leif Erikson, who landed in what is today's Canada's Newfoundland and you know centuries before Columbus ever got there. But even that is overlooking the fact that you can't discover a land that is already inhabited by people and has been for tens of thousands of years. So it's inaccurate to say that anyone like Columbus or Ericsson or whoever else discovered America. America had been discovered for tens of thousands of years. It's like saying the US discovered the moon just because they were the first ones to land on it. Anyway, Whatever the case, Columbus's voyages were a watershed moment in history as they kick-started the European conquest and colonisation of the Americas, led by, of course, Spain, which quickly became a global power as a result. Portugal got involved as well, and the, the 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas uh, that we talked about in episode 106, first circumnavigation of the Earth to, uh, to get across it, uh, this divided the planet between the two empires by the authority of the Pope. And... You remember before, 
that I talked about the consequences of the war that Isabella had fought with Portugal, how Castile had been forced to abandon its conquest of the Eastern Atlantic. Well, now the Spanish, as a result of sending Columbus off on his voyage, as a result of attempting to, again, break this, uh, this hegemony held by, uh, by the Portuguese on water, now they had the entire continent of America to conquer instead, North, Central and South. And so Isabella and Ferdinand authorized and helped to fund a bunch of other westward expeditions. And before long, Spanish domination on the other side of the Atlantic was assured and involved things like the, the fall of the Aztec Empire, Empire, episode 128, get across it. And in time, Isabella and Ferdinand sponsoring Columbus's journey to the New World would lead to the Spanish Empire spanning almost the entire western coast of North, Central and South America, and the wholesale plunder of indigenous gold and wealth, and of course, the deaths of countless millions of indigenous people. Whether they died to Spanish weapons or just the diseases that the Spanish brought with them, Spanish colonization of the Americas was a terrible thing for the indigenous people that lived there. And all of this began with Isabella and Ferdinand, something that they had always been lauded for throughout history, but now as the Western world very slowly begins to be more honest in, in its assessment of the devastating impacts of imperialism, it's a part of the historical reputation that, that is a lot less positive than it was before. And I'm sorry to say that it doesn't get much better from there for Isabella. Isabella and Ferdinand went on to break their word after conquering Granada. They expelled first the Jews that lived there and then later the Muslims as well. And the Spanish Inquisition was empowered to force the conversion or removal of non-believers and countless thousands of Jews and Muslims lost everything as they were hounded out of Iberia, forbidden to take any wealth with them as they, as they went. And Isabella's Christian zealotry ended up with her and her husband being given the title Catholic Monarchs by the Pope, titles that have stuck with them to this very day, titles that I'm sure they were proud of, but today in the 21st century don't reflect all that well on them at all. Anyway, with the Spanish Empire's future secured in the New World and with religious and cultural and social unity being pursued back in Spain, there was one final undertaking that Isabella focused on in her later years. As we move towards the 16th century, Isabella worked tirelessly to secure her family's legacy as a great house of Europe. She married her eldest daughter, Isabella, to the King of Portugal. She married her son and heir, John, to a Habsburg princess. Uh, she married her middle daughter, Joanna, to the Duke of Burgundy, Philip, who was also a Habsburg. And when it comes to her youngest daughter, if you're still not convinced that Isabella's efforts to entrench her family in amongst the most powerful royal houses of Europe was successful, check this out. Her youngest daughter's name was Catherine. And, okay, you're thinking, sure, okay, Catherine, I've, I've, I've never heard of her. What's the big deal? Ah, but, dear listener, you have heard of her. Catherine of Aragon, the first wife of Henry VIII of England, who he famously divorced and in doing so set the wheels in motion to establish the Church of England. Isabella's political wheeling and dealing with her kids directly led to the founding of the Anglican faith and ended up with her becoming the grandmother of the Queen of England, Mary I. Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, whatever you want to call her, she was the granddaughter of Isabella of Castile. 
Not that Isabella lived to see Mary take the throne. That was in 1553, of course. And sadly for Isabella, the last years of her life were struck with tragedy. In 1496, her mother died. And then in 1497, her son and heir John died. And then in 1498, her first daughter Isabella died. And these tragedies all took a toll on Isabella, who wasn't yet 50 years old, and her health began to decline as we get into the 16th century. And she ultimately died at the age of just 53 on the 14th of September, 1504, leaving the crown of Castile to her eldest surviving daughter, Joanna. And Joanna also became the Queen of Aragon when her dad, Ferdinand, died in 1516. But due to her mental illness, she was largely unfit to rule, and so her son, Charles, was her co-monarch, although in reality he was the one in charge until she died, when he inherited both Castile and Aragon, the kingdom of Spain. And Charles, as the son of a Habsburg, he was also himself a Habsburg, and he ruled not just the kingdom of Spain, holding both of his grandparents' titles, but also he was the king in Germany, the king of Italy, lord of the Netherlands, and Holy Roman Emperor. Charles V was one of the mightiest leaders that Europe has ever seen. The culmination of Isabella's tireless dynastic planning. And this led to the continued domination of the Habsburgs as one of the most powerful dynasties in European history. So whatever your opinion is on Isabella, like so many historical figures, her legacy is deeply mixed you can't deny the breadth of her impact on world history. Alongside her husband, Isabella had a hand in the origin of the nation of Spain, the colonization and ultimate fate of the Americas, the dynastic and religious legacies of Europe. And for these reasons, Isabella is an overwhelmingly important figure in world history, and her legacy is readily apparent even today. Not only is Spanish still the most dominant language across the Americas, but Spain is still a united kingdom. And its king, Philip VI, is a direct descendant of Isabella herself. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Isabella I of Castile. And whatever your assessment is of her legacy, and certainly I don't blame you if you've you've got a negative assessment of it, uh, you can't deny that she is a monumentally important figure in world history. And uh, and for that reason alone, her story is, uh, is, is worth sharing. So I do hope you enjoyed the episode. We're going to close it out, of course, with all the boring, normal housekeeping stuff. If you head over to halfhousehistory.net, the, uh, the show's website, you can find everything that you need uh, when it comes to the show. Links to old episodes, ways to subscribe to the show on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, you can find also links to the Patreon. If you want to support the show directly and, uh, and get your hands on some, well, I say get your hands on, you can't, I mean, unless you're fondling your screen or uh, you can't really get your hands on the intangible benefits of, uh, of being a Patreon listener. But if you enjoy listening to someone struggle through recording a podcast and burping and farting all the time, uh, the uncut episodes are, are available there for uh, for your listening pleasure, in addition to things like show notes and, uh, and, and uh, early access to episodes as well. This episode you're listening to right now is actually, it's been available on Patreon for about a month. So uh, if you want to get these shows are a little bit ahead of time. It's not always a month that they're put up ahead of uh, time, but if you want to get them uh, ahead, 
of, uh, of everyone else, you can head over to Patreon and sign up there. And also, if in doing so, you'll get your hands on some exclusive Patreon-only merch at no extra cost. That's included in the uh, in the uh, the membership uh, entry price of, uh, of Patreon as well. But if you want to get uh, if you want to get your hands on some merch and uh, you don't want to do it through Patreon, you can head to the merch shop. Of course, uh, the, the website has the link to do that. And uh, uh, there are often sales held on Tee Public, so if you want to save a, a couple of bucks, then you can you can wait around for a sale to to crop up and uh, and save yourself a, a, a decent whack of money. The most recent sale I think was thirty something percent. So uh, if you want to stick around, look for one of them. That's a good time to buy a half house history T shirt or, or whatever else you're looking for. But uh, I think that'll just about do it. Thank you to all the people who are uh, are out there supporting the show in other ways as well. If you're telling your friends and, and your enemies and, and people about whom you feel largely ambivalent, that's the best way to support the show. People are leaving reviews and just generally letting other people know what you think of Half Ass History. Hopefully positive, generally speaking. If you if you're out there, you know, slandering the show up and down, well, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I guess. At least I'm living in your head rent-free. And also, I'm not sure why you're listening to this right now if you hate the show so much. But hey, you do you, whatever. Anyway, we're going to close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from my account for privacy. We've talked a lot about the Catholic monarchs today. So we've got a question on Catholicism, and it is a very good one. I took sound recording equipment to Catholic Mass, and in doing so have obtained average Catholic volume. How do I now calculate average Catholic density? (laughs) 